Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is Season 2, Episode number 46, and today with the WBC Heavyweight Championship Boxing Match coming up this weekend, December 1st, at the Staples Center in LA between Mr. Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, I thought it was the perfect time to talk combat sports and making weight with sport nutritionist and researcher Dr. Doug Kalman. In this episode, Doug will discuss the importance of understanding the demands of your particular combat sport. He'll also share some of his pre-camp testing methods and the different body composition assessment tools his team uses. On the nutrition front, Doug will talk about how far out from weigh-in to start your weight-cutting process, weekly targets to shoot for in terms of calorie deficits and body weight loss, the impact of meal frequency on weight-cutting, as well as the effects of resting metabolic rate over a season with constant weight-cutting. Doug will also talk about the week before weigh-in, old-school versus evidence-based strategies, rapid weight loss techniques, such as water loading, dehydration, things like sweatsuits. And finally, Doug will also touch in on the importance of the nutrition after the weigh-in, leading up to the fight to get the athlete ready to perform at their best. Doug also shares some of his insights from years himself competing in combat sports, and of course gives his big piece of advice for fighters and practitioners on this front. Absolute pleasure uh, chatting with Doug uh, here today. His wealth of knowledge, terrific insights. So no doubt you're going to find some real pearls here as well. As always, you can check out the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And of course, if you're interested in more on this topic, you can circle back to Season 2, Episode 12 with Dr. Sean Arendt on assessing body composition, performance metrics, and biomarkers. And you can circle back to Season 1, Episode 34 with Doug's co-founder at the International Society of Sport Nutrition, Dr. Jose Antonio, on evidence-based supplements for improving athletic performance. And also just a little reminder, you can check out all these experts and more on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Make sure you subscribe, and of course, you won't miss any of the fantastic guests we've got lined up for the rest of this year and into Season 3 in 2019. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by informed sport and informed choice. Use the promo code DRBUBS10, D-R-B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, Season 2, Episode 46. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Doug Kalman, co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, Vice President of Scientific Affairs at Nutrisource, an adjunct professor of sport nutrition at Nova Southeastern University. Doug is also the sport nutritionist for Hard Knocks 365, the MMA training facility, the United States Tennis Association, as well as a consultant to numerous professional and elite athletes. Doug, appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Terrific. Well, before we dive into talking about fueling fighters and making weight, maybe you could give listeners a quick uh, whirlwind tour of how you got first interested in nutrition and your journey to where you're at today. Oh my God. Great question. <laughs> and maybe the way that I got interested in nutrition or nutrition as a career, if you will, um, or uh, as a passion might be a little bit different than most in that um, as a teenager, 
um, for whatever reason, I became interested and fascinated in between the connection, if you will, between diet, what we eat and what we don't eat, and disease. So specifically, for some reason, I was curious and interested in the connection of diet and heart disease, as well as diet and cancer or colon cancer, more specifically. And so that really started part of my, what I'd call academic interest into nutrition. Uh, concurrently, growing up as a child and then a kid and then a teenager and an adult, I've always done sports and athletics. And the type of sport that I excelled in and participated in um, that was more closely related to nutrition was wrestling. And wrestling, um, as I said, related to nutrition because it was weight classes. And so I would learn in seventh grade, sixth grade, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and throughout my career how um, what I ate affected my body weight. Now, I did not know necessarily at 13, 14, 15 years old how I ate affected performance, but I knew that there was something there. So as time grew on, as I said, I got interested in the diet disease connection and that, and that eventually spurred me to go to college or go to university for ultimately getting at least a bachelor's degree in food and nutrition science or uh, dietetics. Um, and then, you know, I, I continued on in my uh, academic career. Yeah, it's amazing. And of course, you know, yourself as a performance nutritionist, we're going to talk combat sports here specifically, you know, mixed martial arts, boxing, I guess even, uh, you know, wrestling. So from a 30,000 foot view, you know, what are the demands of the sport that you're taking into consideration, let's say, on a mixed martial arts and boxing front? Well, the demands of the sport, really, I think for any sports nutritionist, for any sport, you have to understand the, you have to understand the energy systems and the energy system demands of warm-up, of training, of cool-down, the effect of two or three practices or training sessions in a day. Um, you have to really understand the physiology of what's going on in a person in order to maximize and understand how to fuel those energy systems that are being used and then how to refuel for recovery. So when it comes to working with specifically, uh, let's say, boxers and mixed martial artists, so you're talking about people that – um, um, are involved in sport that have rounds that are three to five minutes in duration. However, when we train, you could be training uh, eight five-minute rounds on a sparring day, let's say, but that's nothing like what a fight would be. So it's really helping a person to understand how to fuel to meet their energy needs and recovery on a daily basis as well as then moving towards if they have a match or a bout and they have to make weight. So my first thing to any dietitian or person, anybody that's interested in sports nutrition is you have to learn basic physiology. You have to learn basic exercise physiology. You have to understand you know, your immediate energy system. You have to understand the lactic acid system. You have to understand the oxidative metabolism, you know, these types of things. And you have to understand that our bodies don't act as a light switch, either all on or all off for the most part, right? You for don't sure. just go and only, you just don't go and only use, you know, aerobic metabolism. <laughs> um, even a marathon runner um, uses different energy systems dur during different times of their running, depending upon the effort, if you will, that they're putting out. 100%. I mean, it's definitely, uh, as you mentioned, so key, knowing the demands of the sport, really knowing your physiology. And if, you know, if from there we talk about pre-camp testing, you know, for yourself and the fighters that you're working with, what are some of the areas that you're looking into in terms of being able to assess, you know, fitness, body composition, hydration, whatever it might be, uh, pre-camp? Well, you know, one of the things that we do, and I'm fortunate and I'm lucky, uh, one, lucky that at Hard Knocks 365, that the coaches, uh, the head coach, Henry Hooft and, and Greg Jones and Tommy, that um, that they allow me to participate. They allow me to work with their athletes. 
So it's not only the athletes that like to work with me. It's getting the buy-in, if you will, from the coaches. Because that makes a huge difference. Because once you got that coach blessing and the coach knows that you have the best interest of that athlete at heart and you're there to help them, it goes a far way, I think. 100%. So my first thing is always being thankful to the coaches and being fortunate enough um, to where I was invited four or five years ago to start working with a group of professional fighters. And the first groups of people that I worked with were um, Anthony Johnson and Vitor Belfort and, and Rashad Evans. Those were the first three fighters that I was actually really exposed to. And one of the things that I decided early on, even when we filmed uh, The Ultimate Fighters uh, Season 21, which I was uh, one of the performance coaches on, uh, which was a cool experience, if, if you follow um, UFC. Absolutely. I would definitely link to that in the show notes. Yeah, so Season 21 was the Black Zillions versus America top team. Um, and, that, and that was the only time they did one team versus another. Um, and it's because there's a history in between the, the owners of those two teams not liking each other and that we're like physically, you know, 15 minutes away from each other, if you will. Not wow. meaning not. So um, one of the things that I decided early on was one way to if you're going to do an assessment of an athlete, including a nutrition assessment, you have to include a physiologic assessment. So I brought in one of the best exercise physiologists that I've ever worked with and, and, and had the pleasure of, of meeting and now I'm calling a friend because it's been five years or so, um, Dr. Corey Peacock. And what we started to do was for all of the fighters pre-camp, meaning before they start a fight camp, we do, a, we do some testing. And the kind of testing that we do, like a VO2 max, Wingate, you know, standard exercise physiology testing, if you will, um, and a few other different types of tests. Um, but one of the things that we look at is, well, where do you cross your aerobic threshold? Where do you cross your anaerobic threshold? What is your correlation of your heart rate and lactic acid at those two thresholds? Then what is the time between aerobic to anaerobic? And what is the time from anaerobic to cessation of exercise or having to quit the, the, you know, the treadmill test. For sure. You can learn a lot about any athlete knowing those variables that I just told you. However, in addition, we would be able, uh, in addition, we would be able to see, of course, you know, what their metabolic rate was, what their body's fuel sources predominantly were during the different stages of a VO2 max and including when they start crossing the aerobic threshold and start crossing the anaerobic threshold and, and when they finally complete or quit the test. And, you know, it, it, that gave us a lot of insight to working together for, okay, this is the fuel your body prefers to use. This is the fuel that would maximize the time between aerobic and anaerobic or anaerobic and cessation. And why those three markers become important, especially anaerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold to, to cessation, is that sort of gives an indication of what's going to happen in a high-level fight, meaning the, the metabolic output, the heart rate, is all going to be elevated very similarly. I will tell you that we even – I had a tailor – um, you know, somebody that's an expert in sewing, go ahead and put together a couple of special sh compression shirts that I made that were that I built in the polar heart rate monitor into the compression shirt so that I could monitor the fighters during sparring. So nice. not only not only during their you know workouts or conditioning, but now you can monitor during sparring. And it gives you a good accurate reading in between for heart rate recovery between rounds. Because I have a rule of thumb that like, I like my guys to drop by at least 30% in a minute um, from their max heart rate at the end of a round or their heart rate at the end of a round. So um, th that gives a good indication that they're, they're, they're recovering going into the next round. So, um, you know, so that being said, 
those are the things that I, that I that I look at. So because you can match those thresholds with which energy systems are being used, and then of course what's being oxidized. So I hope that's helpful because we get a lot of great information just from a VO2 max, just from a wind gate. You know, because on a wind gate you could see what somebody's fatigue index is. So when you know somebody's fatigue index, that also tells me, well, maybe we could prolong this fatigue index if this person added beta alanine to their nutrition routine. For or sure. Maybe, you know, so things like that then start to come into play about here's, here's the information you have. Now, what's in my toolbox that I can maximize this information? Excellent. And in terms of things like body composition, Doug, whereabouts in terms of the different um, strategies would you use there with fighters in terms of assessment? Oh, for body composition. Thank you. I totally forgot that. My head is not uh, caffeinated. <laughs> um, uh, we, we, we are fortunate, believe it or not, to have a, a couple of different toys at our disposal. So because the training center is not far from the university, a lot of the athletes come over to the university and we'll either do a DEXA on them or we'll do a BOD pod or we'll do an ultrasound. Um, one of the things that I found useful in terms of portability is ultrasound. So there are times that instead of having the athletes come over to um, Nova Southeastern University for testing, um, I'll just bring the ultrasound to them. And we'll use that to monitor body composition, but we also use these tools um, to also monitor hydration. Um, because as you know, um, in, in weight-based sports, um, especially in the MMA world, people like to, uh, people unfortunately like to wait to the last moment to cut weight. And, they, and, and people know that we have a good amount of water weight or fluid weight in our body that you can manipulate. So, um, which probably brings us to another topic. But yes, body composition is very important. And I, I will also tell you that there seems to be an optimal body composition range or, or like numbers you don't want to go below in terms of body fat as well. And, and the, the reason I say that, Mark, is that we see that those people that are on the male side eight, seven, six, five percent body fat, their muscular endurance is not necessarily the same as somebody that's 12, 13, 14, or even 15 percent body fat. That's a great so, observation, especially for a lot of folks listening in who just sometimes assume incorrectly that just being the, the leaner athlete is going to be the better performing athlete, which obviously, as you're suggesting there, is, is not going to be the case for a lot of the performance metrics. Yeah, it's not always the case. I mean, there is a case where being too lean hurts you because then your body doesn't have the optimal body fat levels to support hormones and to support um, um, recovery from inflammatory work um, and, and things along those lines. For sure. And if Doug, we kind of zoom out again to just uh, the start of a cut. So for, a, for an athlete who's trying to make weight, is there a certain number of weeks that you like to have with your fighters to, to be able to begin that process? What does that look like? That's a great question, and uh, there's not a clear-cut answer. I, I, I do have a preference. I like, I, I like to have at least six or eight weeks to work with an athlete, you know, um, at least. Sometimes it, sometimes you're blessed with 12. But then, like, for example, I, I have a fighter, um, I'm trying to think, was it two days ago? Saturday, uh, that I learned Saturday that – uh, he just got a last-minute fight, that he just accepted a last-minute fight. And um, so last-minute means he's got, I think it's three weeks to cut 22 pounds. Wow. So, um, you know, that becomes um, – I wouldn't say that becomes. that. That is part of, um, you know, what comes into play. You're going to work with somebody differently that's got 22 pounds over three weeks to lose – Versus somebody that, you know, eight weeks has those 22 pounds. And you have to realize, Mark, um, that our body, again, is made up of part of water uh, or fluids. So if you know, if I know that we're going to weigh in on a Friday at 10 a.m., but yet you're not going to fight until Saturday, until after 6 p.m., 
you have 24 to 30 hours to totally refuel. So in that instance, my rule of thumb in general, my rule of thumb is I like fighters to be within seven, within seven or eight pounds, seven to 10 days out of the fight so that their last week, that last weight cut where you can manipulate water doesn't hurt them. Gotcha. Cause yeah, definitely that last week, there's a lot of different strategies, uh, many old school strategies that could be used, right? Are I mean, I have somebody that I know that dropped 15 on, in, in, in the day before weigh-ins and that, which is ridiculous. Um, and, and they were lucky enough that they were still able to refuel and pull off the fight. But as you know, when you're that depleted on a cellular level, you don't recover in, in, in 12 or 24 hours. You just don't. Even if you drank two gallons of fluid with electrolytes and ate real food, you just it just doesn't happen. So that's why I try to keep most of the fighters within you know an easy sweating session. Of, of dropping their weight. And then we have protocols for rehydration after weigh-in anyway. And in terms of if you had that ideal scenario of, let's say, you're eight or ten weeks out of a fight, is there a certain caloric deficit that you're looking for week to week or, or, or body weight loss that you're looking to achieve week on week to be able to hit that ultimate goal, that weigh-in goal eight weeks out? Well, it really depends upon how much somebody has. So, for example, there's one fighter now that has a December 7th fight at a catch weight um, or at a 170, yeah, at a 170 catch weight. So when he first told me about it, he was 188, three weeks out. So I told him, all right, let's, we got to drop five this week, right? So then we can get him down. And then, so since that point, and I tell you the truth, the only thing that we've done is change his nutrition. We don't, so we got him right now. He's near, he's near weight for weigh-in. And so what do we, and, uh, but I, I believe you have to put in food, which is fuel in the system. You can't starve a person to make them lose their weight and ask them to exercise six hours a day. Right. So I just cut the calories. So I still give them enough where there's fuel in the system and where they're, but they're still irritable as an individual. <laughs> for sure. Um, so for example, with this, with this one, with this gentleman, who's a 170 pound fighter, you know, um, I actually, I, I, I used, uh, I think it was a 1600 to 1800 calorie, uh, meal plan with him. And because he totally prefers to lose all the weight by diet versus and versus manipulating water levels. And in terms of meal frequency, Doug, is there a strategy there or what does the evidence tell us between, you know, two or three meals in the day versus five or six for somebody who's uh, a fighter who's trying to cut weight? Well, the evidence is, is really strong believe it or not, that the smaller, more frequent meals, for example, four to six small meals, each including protein, versus one or two meals that had the same amount of total protein, right, will help you preserve, retain, preserve more lean body mass, more muscle tone as you're cutting weight. So my strategy, and this is not just one study, there's a plethora of studies in, in judoka and in judo, athletes and wrestlers and other weight-based sports that show this. So my strategy is always using the four to six small meal uh, variable, uh, if you will, with, with, with the athletes. And again, to me, anything with calories counts as a meal. I, I, I don't mean a stick of gum that has five or 10 calories. <laughs> For sure. if, somebody's, if somebody's having you know, two scoops of whey protein, that's 50 grams. That's 200 calories right there. And let's say they're mixing it in with uh, a small handful of blueberries and light almond milk. So that's already going to get towards 300 calories. So that's a meal to me. Maybe because I'm a smaller guy, that's a meal, but that's calories. So I count that as one of the feedings, if you will. So I try to do four to six small feedings throughout the day with the with not all of the meals or snacks being equal in calories throughout the day. There is an emphasis for higher amounts of, of calories during some of the active recovery meals. Um, but like I said, it's about having a caloric deficit. I don't like large caloric deficits. If you give me enough time, I only really want a caloric deficit of 350 to 500 calories per day. Um, I don't want my person to totally feel like they're starving, which then mentally screws with them and they want to go 
and 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 that distracts them from their task at hand. So um, there is a learning curve for anybody to get sort of comfortable with being hungry, but there's a difference in between starving and being just a little hungry. For sure, yeah. I mean, definitely getting that protein intake up to be able to preserve that lean muscle, as you mentioned, and keep that satiety up and let them perform. And, you know, Doug, what about resting metabolic rate? As you mentioned, if you're dropping calories by too much, um, that can have an impact. What do we know about fighters over the course of a competitive season or even in wrestlers when we reduce that caloric intake too much? Well, there, there's a, a couple of classic studies in wrestlers, especially out of Purdue University, but where, where they basically found that those that wrestlers that cut weight during the wrestling season, their metabolism slows by, I think it was 250 to 300 calories, which is a lot. That could be 10% of somebody's total caloric intake to slow, if you think about it. So um, there's a negative effect to what I call yo-yo dieting. Um, and over the long term, we actually don't know we do know that after a wrestling season that if a person goes back to their pre-wrestling weight or near it, their metabolic rate will go back to their normal. However, we don't know what is the impact and the effect of repeatedly being hypocaloric, burning extra calories and cutting weight you know, throughout the year and then throughout two years, throughout three years. We don't know if there's a long-term metabolic damage from it, but we do know that it seems to have a short-term impact in slowing your metabolism. Well said. And of course, you know, now if we shift over to that weigh-in week when the athletes are trying to make weight, what are some of the old-school fighting, boxing strategies that athletes unfortunately still fall into using? And what are some of the techniques that you would use in order to help athletes make weight in that week leading up? So one of the things that I still see going on um, is what I call sauna suits. I don't know if you're familiar. So these are these plastic pants and plastic long sleeve shirts that you put on that basically are, are they trap heat in your body. So they make you yep. perspire more. So I, I see athletes that will utilize those in every training practice, but then go drink whatever they want afterwards, meaning they don't understand the purpose of, of it. So I see an abuse uh, and an over-reliance sometimes on, on modalities used to sweat out uh, water weight. And that gives me pause for fear. And it gives me a special pause for fear if the athlete is going into fight week and they're about 12 pounds over. One of the things that we do in when we, hyd we hydrate, we test an athlete, and we also test their hydration level, not only by standard urine test and specific gravity and looking at a matocrit, blah, 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 but again, also by ultrasound and also other techniques, which do allow us to have a good idea of how many pounds of water weight can they cut before it's really going to start to affect them. And we factor that in we factor that in when we're planning somebody's uh, weight control program for making weight. So if we know, for example, that person X, like Gilbert Burns, for example, for example, Derhino, a UFC fighter, has got an upcoming fight. I think it's December first. I think um, uh, up in Toronto, actually. Um, nice. We know for him, for example, that. He usually has uh, an easy eight pounds of water that can be lost without having anything negative. So if we have to drop, let's say, fifteen or twenty pounds during a, a true during a true camp, then we know that we really only have to do a portion of that by body weight, and the rest will be water manipulations at the end. And in terms of some of those water manipulations, is there a certain protocol with uh, intakes or, or electrolytes that you, you tend to use or maybe some red flags that you see other Well, athletes? in terms of manipulating water, you know, of, 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 there, are, there are two things that, some, that people do. One thing that, that, that fighters do is that they, um, well, they'll do something that, that, we, we, that we can call water loading. So that's where you basically, let's say, for example, 
you're three days out from or four days out from weigh-in. So four days out from weigh-in, you drink three gallons of fluid. Three days out, you have two gallons of fluid. Then the last two days, you limit yourself to maybe a half a gallon of fluid. And that overhydration from those first couple of days will cause a change in, in your um, antidiuretic hormone activity in your kidneys that will make you diurese. So you fluid overload, and then that makes your body fluid lose. And so I'm not a fan of that, but there are a hell of a lot of athletes in the UFC and Bellator and in boxing that will water load in order to, to cut weight. And to me, it's, it, that just seems like another nuisance thing to do. Uh, rather than trying to keep your weight in check throughout the camp and only having five, seven, or eight pounds of water to play with in the last week. So I'm not a fan of, of the water loading, but that's very, very popular. Um, and I'm also not a fan of it because it is quite possible and theoretical that when somebody water loads, if they're not getting sodium, they're not getting the right electrolytes, that they will cause themselves to become hyponatremic and resulting in you know, low sodium values in the blood that result in the individual acting sort of like they have a concussion, believe it or not. Yeah, it gets pretty dangerous. It is. People can die from it. You could die from hyponatremia. Matter of fact, it's a trick that's used in hospice care. You let somebody that um, you, you let somebody that is in dire pain and uh, on their last legs, if you will, become a little bit hyponatremic so they don't feel the pain as much and they don't feel what's going on and they're a little bit delirium you know, until they pass away. <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it? And we know from marathon runners and triathletes that water overload causes dilution of the blood, causes dilution of the sodium, even dilution of potassium, which can affect your heart rhythm, which can affect so many different things. Definitely, yeah. I mean, and not to mention, as you stated before, dehydration impacting, you know, obviously things like strength, endurance, coordination, the mental side of things for fighters. So for yourself, Doug, once you've got an athlete who's made weight, sometimes it's almost like people think that's where it ends. But of course, they still need to fight, as you mentioned, 24, 36 hours later. So now how does the nutrition um, philosophy change there once they've made weight to get them back to, uh, to performing and getting all the right fuels on board? Great question. So so let's just play with the idea that we have 24 to 30 hours to refuel before the fight after a weigh-in, right? So um, the first thing that we're doing is we have a protocol, and immediately after weigh-in, um, there's a type of a carbohydrate drink that we use. Um, and um, personally, I'll just give the brand, but it's not an indoor. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to sell anything. But we use a type of carbohydrate called Vitargo. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that we'll use um, 70 grams of Vitargo immediately after weigh-in is, and it's mixed in about 20 ounces of fluid, is what is, it has to do with that your body, it needs to replete. And it will replete, of course, with fluids, it will replete with electrolytes, and it will replete with macronutrients. One of the main macronutrients that is depleted out of muscle when somebody water cuts, besides being water, and they're doing their high in, and they're still doing exercise throughout the last week, is glycogen or stored sugar. And we need glycogen for these energy for these multiple rounds in a fight, right? So the first thing that we look to do is to start the the rehydration process and to start the glycogen reaccumulation process. By giving uh, 70 grams of Vitargo with 20 ounces of fluid to start. And as you and your listeners know, approximately for every one gram of, of glycogen that your body will store, it will store approximately three grams of water. That's yep. why a hydrated muscle looks much fuller, if you will, than a dehydrated muscle. So we immediately start with that. And that's within the first hour they have to finish the 20 ounces. Most of them finish it in like 10 minutes. And then we start to have some food. It could be, believe it or not, it could be a banana and a sliced turkey on wheat bread, right? So some protein, some carbohydrate, and something easy. And uh, that's just a quick example. And that's still while we're in, we haven't left the arena yet uh, or where weigh-ins were. We're just, you know, getting dressed and back in the locker room, if you will. Yep. So, and then we start on... 
that you have to, the athlete has to finish at least a gallon of fluid within four hours of finishing the weigh-in. So a gallon of water, so you know, weighs eight pounds. If that athlete rehydrates with the 20 ounces of, uh, of the Vitargo and the eight pounds of an electrolyte drink, and there's a couple of different electrolyte mixes that I've used with athletes over time, um, they should have put back in, they should have put back on six to 10 pounds within the first six hours after their weigh-in. That's great, and Doug. And, and if someone in that first six or eight hours is, is not I'm gaining that much. That, that, that doesn't include some of the more food that we would have. Because I only told you, like, right after weigh-in, we have the Vitargo. We might have a piece of banana. We might have a piece of watermelon. We might have some sliced turkey or a turkey sandwich. And then we start on drinking the gallon of fluid. Gotcha. But still, within that four hours after, we're still going for another meal. That meal could be pancakes. That meal could be French toast and egg whites. You know what? It's going to be a, some sort of combination of carbohydrate and protein. Um, and and then then we do different stuff for the rest of the day. But the rule of thumb is if by about four to six hours or six hours after the weigh-in, if your athlete's not eight to 10 pounds or seven to 10 pounds regain in body weight, you haven't fed enough during that early refeeding period. So missed opportunity for some if they haven't achieved that then. Right. So you want to, and the reason why this early refeeding period is important is if you think about it, if during this first four or six hours, I'm able to ingest 1500 quality calories and I'm able to ingest X amount of gallons of fluid. Yes. I'm going to have normal, um, 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 needs to go uh, to the bathroom to micturate, right? But at the same time, I'm allowing my body 16 to 20 more total hours of recovery time, including digestion and absorption of, of the vitamins, minerals, and, and, and electrolytes in everything that we just ate and drank. That's terrific. And is there a, is there a range, a target range for carbohydrates per kilogram there in that refueling period that you're generally aiming for I... yeah it's not as high as many people would think and 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 meaning like it's typically in, in six to ten grams range so per kilogram a body weight and and, and the reason why it's not as high as, as what might be uh more common in like your your true endurance athlete that that's using above 10 is that it's too much volume of food so a bloated mm -hmm. athlete is not a good athlete. A sick a, a sick athlete is not a good athlete. <laughs> For sure, to stay on the toilet bowl is not an, a good athlete. So we that's why we use the combination of liquids and solids, liquid carbohydrate and solid carbohydrate, because they're absorbed at different rates and frequencies, if you will. Definitely, and as you mentioned there, just the art of the practice of just being able to observe your athlete and see how they're reacting to the foods and not being on the toilet or not bloated or what it, what it, whatever it might be there. And um, yeah, there are, there are there are times that I've traveled with with some of these uh, fighters, and um, they're for, fortunately enough for for me, they'll either let me they'll either let besides the drinks and stuff, they'll either let me directly cook the foods that they need or go pick them up. Right, because we like ideal. You have to remember. You have to to keep in mind, you're fighter X, and now you're fighting in Toronto, or you're fighting in in Las Vegas. Well, you're staying at a hotel. <laughs> so, w what are you eating? Are you going to the local Denny's? Are you going to the local um, hotel like room service, um, or are you going to Whole Foods and and have a crock pot in your room? So, all of those little nuances make a difference as well. So. Um, it's good for any athlete and their team, their coaches, to try to get a lay of the land of wherever their fight's going to be so they can know where everything is so they can have everything prepared for the athlete. So we get there a couple days in advance, of course, and we're able to figure out where the supermarket is, where everything is that we need uh, in order to help refuel that athlete. Yeah, and I imagine as you know, up-and-coming athletes as well gets even more important when budgets are really thin to be able to to do a bit of that detective work to make sure you're not struggling to find resources yes i i've even worked with athletes that that you know are 
let's say, like you said, up and coming. So this, and, and they don't come from, they don't come from a moneyed background. So they're literally living on 10 to $15 a day for food. Um, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. And, sure. and um, so then I, I help them choose. I make their shopping list with them for the supermarket or for the big box stores of how to buy the rice in bulk, how to buy your meat in bulk. So this way that, you know, they're able to do it and able to live uh, uh, as well as possible on their limited budgets. And you're right. Um, um, where you are in your career and the support around you can make a big difference. For sure. And, and Doug, if we follow this all the way along here, we've done the the eight-week cut. They've weighed in. Now they're refueling before the fight. It, the meal before the fight, is there anything particular that's going on with you and your fighters is it really based on some of the athlete preference what does that look like in terms of that last meal before the before the fight it's funny it sounds like what is your last meal like <laughs> um um to be honest with you mark it's it's a combination of both if i'm working with an athlete that's new to me i will def i will ask that athlete what do you prefer to have especially meaning like not if it's the athlete's first fight, first or first amateur fight or first pro fight, but if it's somebody that already has experience, um, I have a, my own personal rule. I don't like to do anything new with an athlete or myself on, let's say, game day or fight day that I've never tried before, at least to see how the body reacts. So if it's your first time, if, it, if it's your if you're running a marathon and you've never used like a goo or one of those before, it's probably not a good idea to try it during your marathon because you don't know how your body's going to react. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So that's one rule of thumb. So I either will defer to whatever that athlete prefers to have or, believe it or not, I concentrate on the morning meals uh, on fight day um, because what happens is come the afternoon and early evening – with a lot of fighters, and I can tell you that I compete as a master as a master's boxer myself. So that means um, uh, under USA Boxing, I compete with people around my same age, and and we have weigh-ins, we have you know refs, we have fights. Um, that you want that that on sometimes some people's nerves um, don't allow them to really eat much in the six hours or so before their fight. And so sometimes you have to, as a nutritionist, I have to coax a person, hey, you're not fighting for another six hours. Let's have a couple bites of this, right? Definitely. So typically I, so typically I either de defer to what the athlete has been doing or I try to control at least their first two meals and snacks. The first meal, believe it or not, being a combination of uh, French toast and eggs. Why French toast, you might ask? For the common, and, and it could be made with a whole grain or a whole wheat bread. Uh, that's kind of immaterial to me, but it's for the combination of higher carbohydrate, lower protein with a little bit of fat. And because there are some, there are some studies that actually show that meals similar to that can increase same day performance by about nine percent. Wow! So I don't. That may not factor over to fighting, um, but it may fa factor over to muscular endurance or, or physical output um, or cogn cognitive ability. One thing that is lost on everybody or lost on a lot of people is what I call cognitive nutrition. The fight game, um, it's not a game, right? Because once you get punched in the face, it doesn't feel like a game. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I sparred on Saturday. And first I was thinking, oh, we're having a nice sparring. And then I walked right into a right hand, flush in my face, flush on the nose. You know, one of those that make you sting. And uh, then I said, oh, we're not playing. We're, we're boxing. <laughs> and then it, it woke me up saying, all right, if you hit me once, I have to hit you twice. Um, so, but going back to this, it could be as simple as oatmeal, honey, and eggs as, as a first meal. You know, and, and it yep. could be um, some white rice and, and, and chicken as a second meal with some unsweetened applesauce uh, as sort of a side. You know, there was an athlete on Saturday that, that uh, again, like I'm working with for his upcoming fight December 7th, and he was asking me, 
about vegetables, which I was excited to hear. Nobody really asks about vegetables. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I, I had to explain to him what we're eating during your fight camp, vegetable-wise, is not going to be during the same during fight week or the last two days. Because I said, You're, you eat the amounts of, of vegetables that we do, not only for the phytonutrients that are in there, the naturally occurring antioxidants and, and natural vitamins and minerals that are found, but also for roughage, for fiber. And I said, so I, I had to explain to this person, he's like, yeah, but I like having broccoli, asparagus and this. I'm like, yeah, but on fight day, you don't need to be having the urge to go sit on the bowl because you had 20 grams of fiber. Definitely. You know, that, the, those nuances get pretty important. They, they do because, you, the, uh, you know, for most people, their nerves are going to have them going to the bathroom anyway a couple of times on fight day. Whether you're a seasoned pro or not, it's natural. So um, I try to emphasize earlier in the day foods with a combination of simple carbs and complex carbs for, for faster and slower burning, if you will, and always with some protein. Terrific, Doug. Well, listen, I definitely want to respect your time here. So last couple of questions for you. One sure. of them, I'd heard you mention this quote, which I thought was fantastic at uh, one of your talks, which is, you know, whether it's MMA or the fight game, it's it's effectively chess with consequences, right? Because it's a, it's a mind game, as you said, but obviously once you get punched in the face, you realize that, uh, that it does have consequences. Every, you, yeah, Mark, every, every step that you see in general, somebody that is a little bit learned, Every step that you see that fighter taking a boxing ring or an MMA um, octagon, if you will, is with the purpose. It's either to make the person move a certain way, react a certain way, or to set up something. So it's totally chess. And when the person's reacting to you, they're not only reacting to what you're doing, but they're trying to set you up for what they want to do. So, 100%. And yeah, and you know that, and I know that. So that's why it becomes chess. And the consequences are you know, one false step and, and you're knocked out. <laughs> <laughs> and for yourself, obviously competing, um, you know, what insights has that brought you being not only someone who's acting as the performance nutritionist and sports scientist, but actually going through it yourself. And even, you know, as you get into, you know, the master's categories and, and whatnot. Well, you know, it, it's brought, it's brought awareness to me that, that, that when you're under pressure, and to me, fighting is pressure, and there's different forms of pressure. You can pressure fight, but it's pressure just to walk in a ring, self-imposed, but it's pressure. Um, that when you do that, you also have to have the ability to sort of think logical and calm rather than react emotional. It's often when people react emotional that they make a mistake, especially in the fight game. Somebody hits you three times, you smile to tell them it doesn't hurt you, which means it hurt you, and then you try to, to throw a barrage of punches back wildly, leaving yourself open for body shots or a, a, an uppercut or something. So uh, the other part of, of the fight game that is semi-related to nutrition, because nutrition can impact cognition, is your ability to control emotion and to stick to a game plan versus getting lost in the moment. Probably true for life, but definitely true in, the, in, in, in any of the fight sports. Yeah, I imagine it really highlights that, uh, that in a big way. And, you know, Doug, last question for you here. In terms of, you know, one piece of advice that you'd give, you know, a sport nutritionist or a young athlete, in, in a, you know, whether it's an MMA fighter, boxer, et cetera, what's one piece of advice around, you know, nutrition for, for weight making that you would emphasize with them? Wow, that's hard. Honestly, I'm drawing a blank, meaning one piece of advice. My, probably if I could think of something off the top of my head, it would be don't underestimate the power of nutrition. And don't think of food, food as just enjoyment. I, I was explaining, I'm working with one of the fighters that I'm working with right now is a teenager. And um, if everything goes to plan, we'll see him in the 2020 Olympics, uh, boxing, representing USA. Terrific. This kid is, is he's currently ranked number one in 132 pounds and number two in 141 pounds. So he's ranked in two different weight classes. And one of the things that I try to emphasize with Aaron is that 
food is your fuel. This is not the time to say, oh, you know, this broccoli is bland. Yes, you can learn how to spice, but meaning that convenience foods, it's not the time to uh, and appropriate for your body to be running through McDonald's and, and those type of foods all day. So my, my point being is that to take nutrition seriously, and, and if you take it seriously, it could add to your experience and your abilities. But if you don't take it seriously, over time, it will catch up to you. Fantastic, Doug. That's uh, really appreciate the insights here today. Terrific, and appreciate you taking the time. So, you know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your phenomenal research? Oh, thank you. Very much appreciated. First, if it's okay with you, Mark, I'd like to plug the International Society of Sports Nutrition, the ISSN. Absolutely. The, I the ISSN is uh, the only nonprofit, academic-oriented society dedicated solely to sports nutrition which is different than a lot of other medical or, or scientific societies. So if people are interested in going to conferences, and the conferences are geared not only for athletes, but also for their coaches, trainers, graduate students, doctors, physical therapists, sport nutritionists, you can take a look at www.viss.org. And if you like to read and you want to read the latest on studies in sports nutrition or position stands regarding things that are very important in sports nutrition, please see JISSN.com, which is the journal of the ISSN, uh, a peer-reviewed PubMed indexed journal uh, where we have free downloadable um, articles and materials uh, for anybody at that website. Yeah, um, one phenomenal thing, resource. Sorry, one other thing I forgot. You, uh, so my own personal plug is if you're a Twitter or an Instagram person, I'm at Doug Kalman, PhDRD on Twitter. And on Instagram, I believe I'm just at Doug Kalman. Awesome, Doug. Yeah, I definitely have to see the ISSN. Phenomenal resources. Definitely a big support for us at Canada Basketball. And we'll include those links as well as your links in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Doug, for taking the time. Thanks for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Doug and want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, please take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcatching platform. Thanks again, guys, and see you all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.